Well, thank you for praying with us, Wayne. Well, the reason that all the pews have moved from out there to in here is because we have to get ready for our vacation Bible school and the setup for that over the next couple of weeks. And so thanks to all the men who worked really hard to move the pews in and get them set up exactly right this morning. Well, I have made a couple observations uh, recently about our society that you probably have uh, made similar ones as well. And first of all, is that within our society, there are a whole lot of different ideas about who God is, what his character is like, what salvation might be if there is such a thing, and uh, thoughts about ultimate reality. In fact, there are so many different opinions out there that just sometimes people hold more than one. Um, And people seem to like it that way, that there's so much this diversity, so much uncertainty, but they're really stumbling in the dark, you know, wandering lost amid all these lofty ideas that are in their heads. And if you talk with people about that, and I hope you do spend uh, time talking with people about the spiritual realities that they think about, one of the things that constantly amazes me is that people are rarely, at least the ones I've run into, are rarely satisfied with what they've come to on their own, thinking about God and ultimate reality and these types of things. And rarely are that, they that certain, even in the things that they say themselves. And it just reminds me that people need the light of the knowledge of God to fill them and to guide them. A second observation that I made recently is about a moral characteristic in our society. It's been in the course, it's always in the news, and you probably witness it almost every single day, and that is that people seem to really lack self-control uh, regarding their emotions. They just, they let them run wild. And uh, for example, you know, one area in which this is true is that people seem to have very little patience with other people. But yet at the same time, they can angrily demand that people be patient with them. But they don't seem to see the irony, I guess. And uh, people need, it seems, to understand the mercy of God and actually having forgiveness of sins themselves so that then they can live in peace with people around them. Well, you know, these needs, although they're seemingly really glaring to us as we live our lives every day, um, but they've always been two of the greatest needs that humanity has had since the beginning. The first is to have a true knowledge of God, and the second need is to have the real forgiveness of sins. And people in their natural state, as we're all born into a sinful state of being, we're in spiritual darkness. People live there, and they live that out in the very shadow of death, because at some point, God will take their life from them and bring upon them judgment due for their sins. But we know that we have an all-merciful God who has visited us and accomplished redemption, and we have experienced it as Christians in Jesus Christ, and he has forgiven us of our sins because we put our faith in him. So let's pray for our friends this morning. Lord God, we thank you for your word that gives us the light of the knowledge of you. That without it, we know we would be stumbling in darkness too and without hope and without God in this world. But because of the scriptures you've given to us, we know who you are. We know the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. And we want to pray for our society that we interact with, even just locally here every single week, our friends that we talk to who don't know you, that need the forgiveness of sins. We pray that you would be merciful and grant to them salvation. 
And we ask this morning, above all, for the reason that we are here is to hear your word and have our faith in you, Lord Jesus, increased. And we ask that you would do that for us this morning. Amen. Amen. So you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 57. And we are going to be joining along with Zacharias in blessing God this morning. We're continuing our series in the Gospel according to Luke. Again, it's a long narrative passage this morning, so we'll experience it as we go through it this morning. But Zechariah's prophecy, as you'll see, uh, is very specific and very clear about God's work of salvation in Jesus Christ. In fact, he presents images in his song and tells us about titles of Jesus Christ that are some of the titles that we hold dearest as Christians. And Luke has been captured by the glory of the story and wants to present it to us as well this morning so that we would join him and bless God for the salvation that's been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And the way we bless God is by rejoicing in our forgiveness that he's given to us and by rejoicing in the future that we know that he is going to bring to us. That's how we bless him this morning. And Luke is also showing us that we can really trust God. He's going to deliver on his promises. In verses 57 to 66, we can be astonished at what God has already accomplished. And then in verses 67 through 80, anticipate what God has yet to accomplish through his Messiah, Jesus Christ. And for Luke, the story, as I've noted every single week as we've gone along, the story of Jesus Christ, which is really the whole gospel, but the story really begins with John the Baptist and the intertwining of their lives and their stories. And it shows us that God has fulfilled history. And so way back in chapter 1, as, as the gospel begins, as his book begins, there's the announcement of this man named John, who would be the preparer of the Lord. And then we sort of leave John aside, and then starting up at verse 26, there's an announcement about another baby that's going to be born. That's Jesus, and he's the Son of the Most High. And then we leave that story aside. And then in chapter 1, verse 39 to 56, we have the meeting of these two mothers, these two women pregnant by the work of God in their lives, and they joyfully exalt God together. And so we're going to continue to see a lot of twos. We're going to see two births. We're going to see two presentations or dedications. And Jesus, of course, is going to be shown as far superior than to simply his predecessor and announcer, John the Baptist. But let us bless God this morning by just rejoicing in the fact that our sins are forgiven and that we have a future that is awaiting us when Jesus returns. And as we do so this morning, I'm confident that we'll come to understand the good news, that it's even more good than we probably experienced. And the more we believe it's good, the more likely we are to share it with other people. So let's look at our first section in verses 57 to 66. We should be astonished at what God has already accomplished. So we read here in this section, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, well, None of your relatives is called by that name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted to call him. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. 
And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Well, at the very beginning in verse 57, it says the time has come. Some of your translations may say the time has been fulfilled, which is a better translation. Because fulfill is a very important word in Luke, as we've already seen. He begins his gospel that the time has been fulfilled. It's a key word in his whole explanation of what's going on when Jesus came, is that finally God has starting to fulfill all these amazing promises of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And it's just like the word of the Lord had spoken to Gabriel earlier to Zacharias, the father of John. If you look back in chapter 1, verse 13, the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. And that's what they're doing all throughout the hill country. The neighbors and the relatives, they hear about the fact that Elizabeth, this old woman who's never had a child, has now given birth to this baby boy. And we read earlier back in chapter 24 that after the announcement to her, she kept herself in seclusion, just enjoying God's blessing on her life. Surely no one would have expected the announcement, hey, did you hear that Elizabeth had a baby? We have to go check this out. And so everybody wants to find out what's going on. And so when they make the presentation of the baby, people are eager to see it. And notice the connections in the words magnify or rejoicing in your text and and also great mercy. This rejoicing and this great mercy, these are connections right back to Mary's song in the earlier passage that we looked at last week in verses 46 and 47 and verses 50 and 54 where she magnifies the Lord and calls us to rejoice with her for the mercy of God has come. And again, it's another way that our author Luke intertwines these stories so that we rejoice just as much at John's birth as we do at Jesus' birth because it's really telling the one story of Jesus Christ. John is the beginning of the fulfillment. But you know, there's so much more joy to come for these people. They're so excited about John being born, but just wait until they see more. The people are astonished, of course, at his naming. Zechariah and Elizabeth have their son circumcised on the eighth day according to a Mosaic law. It's a sign of the covenant. And the group of witnesses have gathered to observe. And they just assume he's going to be named Zacharias after his father. And so they're ready to call him that. But Elizabeth corrects them to their own amazement. Says, no, no, his name's not going to be Zacharias, but it's going to be John. Because somehow her husband was able to communicate with her, even though he was mute and most likely deaf, as we'll see, because he didn't believe at first. She knew that promise and that his name was to be John and from verse 13. But you know, it's not customary to name somebody after somebody who's not in your family line. It can't be right. They don't accept her word, so of course, what do they do? They go to the source. They go to the person who should be naming him anyway, which is the father who would name the children. And so he goes to, they go to Zacharias, appeal to him, and ask, what should the name of the child be? And so they make signs to him because they can't communicate And so then they give him this wooden, probably a wooden waxen tablet type of a thing, and he writes upon there, and Zacharias writes very deliberately, in faith and in confidence, John is his name. 
And the people are astonished at the name and this whole miraculous situation that they're experiencing. That's immediately what it says in verse 63. They're astounded. And then suddenly God releases Zacharias from the, the judgment that he placed upon him where, where he was mute and, and deaf. And he begins praising God. Behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you didn't believe my words, which shall be fulfilled in the proper time. And as soon as his mouth is released, three things happen to these people. I mean, he starts blessing and praising God as he had probably been meditating on for this whole nine months. They're filled with fear because clearly this indicates God is doing something great. He shuts Zechariah's mouth, then he opens it up. And they're talking about this and the birth of John all in all their little villages all throughout the hill country of Judea. And they're pondering and asking one another and thinking together, well, who do you think this baby John is going to be? Obviously, something great for the Lord. And then Luke adds his comment that all of this happened because the Lord's hand was on him. That means that the Lord was working with John. You know, soon the people of Judea would be filled with way more amazement than they were that day. Because in about 30 years or so, John the Baptist is going to come leading a spiritual revival. So we, too, are supposed to be astonished at what God has accomplished already. Even in the storyline as we read it, we marvel in reflection upon the past and how God worked in this situation. I mean, it's part of the story that we know so well. And Luke hopes that we can take delight in God's plan unfolding, in its intricacies, in its real history. You know, we often refer to Luke as Dr. Luke for a variety of reasons, but he's also a theologian, and he's also a historian. And that will come out more and more as we go through the Gospel of Luke together. And isn't it wonderful and amazing? The historical value and aspect of the Bible in just hearing about how God unfolds it all in such great detail. It shows his wisdom. It's what and how he wants to display himself in the history of redemption. The Bible is not just simply a book of pithy spiritual sayings to get you through the day. It's the history of God working in this world and in our lives. And we have a greater joy because we know what role John would play, a much greater role, and we know who would come after him, who he was pointing to, our salvation, the one Jesus Christ, and he's come. And it's this morning we rejoice in the forgiveness we have, in the future we know we have, and by rejoicing in that, by being joyful people, we actually bless God because it's a way of returning thanks to him for what he's done. Well, next, we get to anticipate what God has yet to accomplish with our Messiah. And so we get to the second song. There are four of them in the beginning of Luke. This is, this is Zacharias's song. And we noted last week when we looked at Mary's, uh, it's called, historically, it's referred to as the Magnificat because of the first word, Magnify in Latin. Well, Zechariah's song, first word, is bless, so it's known as the Benedictus historically in the church. That's the Latin word for bless. But it's the second hymn in Luke's prologue, meaning there is so much more joy to come, and that's one of the themes in Luke's gospel account. 
And the prophecy here is going to fill out his praise from verse 64. I mean, he just got his voice back. So now he wants to let out everything he's been pondering and thinking about for the last nine months that he couldn't tell anybody about how great God is. And so here it is. He even answers the question that people are going around asking, well, who is John going to be? Who is John going to be? And he answers that question here as well in our passage. So there are two parts to this song. God's work in redemption, and that's who he addresses first, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And then the second part of the, of the song, starting in verse 76, he speaks to his son, and you, child. Just like when we dedicate babies, we speak to the child, and that's what, that's what Zechariah, his father, does here. Now, you'll also notice a few things up front, and we'll read it in a minute, but you can skim through part one and skim through part two. There are so many things that are repeated, uh, ideas, uh, words, like God visiting us in verse 68, part 1, verse 78, part 2, um, where he mentions his people in part 1 and part 2. He mentions salvation, both in part 1 and part 2. He mentions the prophets, both in part 1 and part 2. And then there are just things that get repeated a lot, like enemies and the fathers, and of course in the center of the song, is God's faithfulness to his covenant. And that's really the message of the song, is that God is faithful to his people to bring them salvation and the Messiah that he's promised. And so we go back to the beginning of Luke and the words of Gabriel to Mary, and this tells us what, again, the story is all about. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So part one is about God's redemption and his Messiah, and this is verses 67 to 75. So just again to remind you, so in part one, Zechariah is speaking to God and about God, and in part two, he's going to speak to his son John. But of course, we get to overhear the conversation. So it begins... And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant." the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. You know, Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit just like Elizabeth was earlier back in verse 41 when she blesses Mary. Again, here's another look forward in the Gospel of Luke. Luke will talk about the activity of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, quite a lot. And we'll learn a lot about the ministry of the Spirit from Luke's gospel. Well, Zechariah will bless God and his Messiah and his own son as the prophet. Even though the first section is all one sentence, everything I just read to you is all one sentence, verse 68 is the main statement. It's the controlling idea. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. That's 
what this song is all about. The Lord God of Israel has indeed visited his people because Jesus is already incarnate in the womb of Mary at this time. She's already conceived. And if we look ahead to verse 78, this Messiah will soon appear and shine upon us all. The Lord God of Israel has accomplished redemption for his people. He would do it, of course, ultimately in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. This is the purpose of his visit from heaven. Now, we have to be able to read it from both viewpoints at the same time because on the one hand, this is the promise to the Jewish people that had been given for millennia. And it's the promise finally fulfilled. This is also the hope that the Gentiles have, all the other peoples of the world would have, it would be fulfilled as well. As we would be grafted into his people. Redemption would be for the Jew first and then also for the Gentile. And Luke makes this very clear in his two-volume work, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. As you see the Gospel go out, fulfill all the other prophecies about bringing peoples from around the world to worship Jesus. For example, the Apostle Paul in Romans 9, 24 says that he also called, not from Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. In Romans 15, 8, the Apostle Paul writes, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy as it is written. And then he quotes a bunch of prophets from the Old Testament. See, this visitation and redemption to Jew and Gentile alike who would be called by God and called into his people is a real blessing. And then he's, this man is called immediately one of the first titles here for Jesus, the Horn of Salvation. It's a favorite title of our Messiah right here. It's, it's obviously referring to the house of David. A horn is a common Old Testament metaphor for power. I mean, you can think about two animals fighting and using their horns, and that's where this image comes from in battle. And it clearly is saying that this one who will come as the promised Davidic Messiah, the one who's expected to come. And verse 70 adds that this is just as the holy prophets have spoken with one voice. So here's a homework assignment. Pick a prophet. Pick any prophet in the Old Testament. Pick Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all the minor prophets. Just pick one. And read that prophet, and you can see for yourself that all the prophets have predicted this day. Then verse 71 proceeds to clarify that the salvation is from our enemies, from all who hate us. And it's important to realize that this salvation, as this song continues, has two different dimensions to it when we talk about salvation. One is political, and the other is spiritual. And the spiritual piece surely comes out in verse 77 to give people a knowledge of salvation, the forgiveness of their sins. And we're to extrapolate that this means all of God's enemies, everyone who's an enemy of his Messiah, enemy of his people, enemy of his purposes in the world. And it's not just among humanity, it's also in the realm of the demonic. 
can include, as we commonly speak about our enemies, of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Our salvation is a total salvation. And we only see a little bit of the political part now, but when Jesus returns, we'll see it all because he'll be king. But we see much more of the spiritual now as we see our life transformed by the gospel and other people's lives transformed by the gospel. But you know what? That's not even all of that. There's more spiritual blessing to come in the glories of heaven. And notice that we can serve now without fear of our enemies. If you drop down to verse 74, in whatever form they come upon you, whether it's people or demonic or just your flesh or the world, wherever it's coming from, and when you are tempted to be afraid, and we're all tempted to be afraid, then look to God's horn of salvation, the powerful messianic king and his resurrection from the dead and his conquest over enemies and his return that's going to come. And the way we look to him is in prayer, in praise, in thought, in thinking, in spending time in the scriptures and rehearsing to our own souls the truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ has conquered. And there's no reason to be afraid of anything. Verse 72 and 73 go on to explain another major purpose of God's visitation, his redemption, his salvation. It's central to the storyline here this morning is to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant to us. It's to demonstrate his covenant faithfulness. And by acting now at this time in history, he's bringing to fruition the mercy that he's promised, that he promised to the patriarchs, the fathers, so long ago. And there's one of two possible meanings here. One is just simply that he's fulfilling the hope that there was this promise, well, now is the fulfillment. But it could also be a reference to the fact that as the patriarchs are already in heaven and glorifying God and in his presence, they're rejoicing as they see this promise actually reach its fulfillment. It all goes back to the beginning, to the oath that God gave to Abraham when he spoke. By myself I have sworn, Genesis 22, declares Yahweh, because you have done this thing. Now this is in the situation when Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So God now, again, in a most glorious way, is making good on this promise from thousands of years ago. In his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the blessing of salvation. He is the one who would bring an increase to the people of God and expand it by more and more people than you could have ever imagined would be a part of the family of God all over the earth. Then verses 74 and 75 give further explanation of another purpose of God visiting and redeeming and saving. It's for our greater service, as we already mentioned, without fear of our enemies who want to prevent us from doing this. We have a renewed attitude of holiness and 
obedience of righteousness, we're free to worship God with our whole life and our whole being and on in eternity, into eternity because of what God did. He's freed us from sin. Not just its guilt, but he's freed us from its power over our lives. He's freed us from the shame that it brings into our lives. We're set free because Jesus paid it all. And we can worship him in great delight. And we don't have to be afraid of any enemies, anyone who would attempt to shut us down. First Peter, the apostle writes in chapter two, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, God's destroyed our enemies with the cross, sin, the devil. And he has given us new life in Christ, and we can serve him then without fear. Well, that's how Zechariah says part one of his song, giving praise to God for all this work, faithfulness to the covenant, mercy to not just the Jews, but to all the peoples of the world. That's what's going to be coming. It's here. And then he says, and to you, my son, to John, he says the next part, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So Zacharias now speaks to his newborn son during this dedication ceremony. He's prophesying in the Holy Spirit, of course. And he talks about how great John is going to be. And John is going to be great because God has a unique calling for him and how he's going to serve the Messiah, Jesus, who would be born soon. John would be the prophet of the Most High, just like Jesus was eternally the Son of the Most High, as we read back in chapter 1, verse 32. And John would fulfill the prophetic word of Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40. There are going to be a bunch of prophet sections I'm going to just reference for you if you want to write them down here. You might want to look them up later. But Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40. John fulfills those in making preparations. Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Well, John is the messenger for the Lord of glory. And then in Isaiah 40, verse 3, a famous passage we read a lot at Christmas time, a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God, let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low, and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. John the Baptist, as we know, was the voice calling out in the wilderness which is where his revival would begin. And John would go before the Lord to prepare his ways. It could be a reference specifically to Jesus here, that he's going before Jesus to prepare his way, or it could be more general and just speaking about he's going before the Lord to prepare the way for his Messiah, 
Either way, it ends with Jesus. That's what he's doing. He's preparing people for Jesus. And how is he preparing them? He would be preparing them by giving them the knowledge of salvation. The forgiveness of sins. That somehow the Messiah would accomplish that. We've all been waiting for that. People would enter salvation as John would preach by repenting of their sin and putting their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we know the rest of the story because we've read ahead in this book before, and you can feel free to read ahead and you can get to the cross and resurrection and that's how it would take place. But, you know, if you're just a first-time reader of Luke, you know, you're reading through Luke and you get to this point, you might want to ask yourselves some questions. I mean, John is saying he came to give the light of the knowledge of salvation and forgiveness of sins. Do you have this knowledge? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? Do you know how to get them forgiven? Do you know what salvation is? I mean, if you have these things, and be joyful, and if you don't, ask someone to explain to you how to get your sins forgiven. Now, forgiveness of sin is a very common way in the Gospel of Luke, because it's going to come up a lot, of how he describes our experience of salvation. What does it mean to be saved? It means to have your sins forgiven. I mean, that's the greatest burden ever could be lifted off of our life. And so some key passages, if you want to flip ahead, I'll just give you the, the next three. Uh, in Luke 3.3, 3, and he, speaking of John the Baptist, came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And you skip ahead to chapter 5, verse 20. And, and seeing their faith, Jesus said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? I mean, who can forgive sins but God alone? And then regarding Levi, just in the next section, 531, and Jesus answered and said to them, it's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, meaning self-righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's why he came. And then, of course, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all throughout the Gospel of Luke, you'll see this for yourself. But forgiveness of sin is our greatest need as people. And we need to know that that's our greatest need. Because sometimes we don't think it is our greatest need. Or the people that we're talking to in this world, they don't think that's their greatest need, but that is their greatest need. They may have everybody have many needs, but that's the greatest need. And once we know that that's our greatest need, then we need to know how to respond to the fact that God has made provision for the forgiveness of sins. People don't know about salvation naturally. They're not going to figure it out on their own. They have to be told and shown the scriptures. That's how they find out about it. We have to tell them. We have to give them the light of the gospel. Well, then in verses 78 to 79, he goes on to base all the salvation work in history in God's mercy. And so we read then in 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So here's another favorite uh, title for Jesus Christ that we all know and love, 
the sunrise, various other translations, the rising sun, the day spring. In Greek, it's anatole, the dawn. This was a very clear and well-understood prophecy of the Messiah who would come and fulfill David's line. And it's the wonderful title of our Lord Jesus Christ, the sunrise from on high. And it's really a combination of two different streams of prophecy in the Old Testament. There's a whole set that refer to the star who would come, meaning the ruler in David's line. And then there's a whole other set of prophecies that talk about the branch who would spring forth. Again, referring to a ruler, the one who would fulfill David's line. And it's really interesting that the Greek term here, Anatole, is used to translate both of those streams of prophecies. And so again, for your further meditation too, Numbers 24, 17, this speaks about Jesus who would come. A star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall arise from Israel. Malachi 4.2, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Both referring to Jesus. And the prophecies regarding the branch who would come, Isaiah 11, 1 through 10, and Jeremiah 23, there's also more in Zechariah. But Isaiah 11, just sections from it. Then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then it will come about in that day that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Jeremiah 23.5 Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will rise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and will act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. You see, Zechariah is saying that all of these prophecies, all these streams of prophecies that we know so well, they've all found their fulfillment now. Jesus is here. The Lord has come. The sunrise from heaven would shine upon all who dwell in the darkness of sin and who are always near their death. That's how we live our lives. And like a sunrise, he would bring light, hope of salvation, guidance to those people who are spiritually lost and ignorant into the way of peace and salvation and the warmth of God's salvation. Obviously, this language here is just filled with references to the prophet Isaiah all over the place. Isaiah 9, 2, the people who walk in darkness will see the great light, and those who live in the dark land, the light will shine upon them. Isaiah 42, 6, I am the Lord, I have called you, speaking of Jesus, in righteousness, I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. 
to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Isaiah 49, 6, he says, it's too small a thing for you, speaking again of Jesus who would come, to be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Judah, or Jacob, and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the very end of the earth. Isaiah 61, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you, and nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Speaking of Jesus and his people. You see, John would get people ready, but Jesus would be the sunrise on high, from on high who would actually do the real work of salvation. He would be the true light. Well, verse 80 then concludes, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So John, speaking of John's spiritual growth, his physical growth, perhaps even the working of the Spirit of God developing a character in John, because you know John the Baptist had a radical preparation for a radical work. And we'll learn more about that as we've already been hinted at, but as we go through Luke. John lived in isolation in the desert wilderness, probably in the Jordan Valley west of the Dead Sea, until the time for his public appearance when he would begin his preaching ministry to point people to Jesus Christ and identify for them who he is. Now, the specificity of this prophecy and its closure here, we're done at the end of chapter 1, is simply saying, you know, this is about to happen. As you're reading along in the story, you stop and you realize, that's next. That's what's going to come next. The sunrise is going to be born, and he's going to shine on us. And that's exactly where this gospel goes in chapter 2. So we want to anticipate what God has yet to accomplish with our Messiah. And yes, we can do it in the storyline as well as where we are in the ultimate storyline. We can re-experience it if we enjoy the Gospel of Luke as it's written. I mean, today we've seen the Old Testament roots of the Gospel bearing fruit. The fulfillment of these key promises to Abraham the patriarch and to David have now been fulfilled. And we can bless the Lord along with Zacharias. I mean, for the visitation and redemption he talks about from his viewpoint. To just think about what it must have been like. And then, of course, from our viewpoint, he's looking forward to something that's not fully yet revealed. But we look back on it fully understanding it because we have Scripture. Our hope is made more sure because the fulfillment has already begun. And we look forward to the next stage. And that's when our King Jesus returns from heaven and reigns in glory and righteousness upon this earth. And so we bless God for our salvation we've received in Jesus by rejoicing in the fact that we're forgiven. Because that means we're part of his people and we're members of the kingdom. And for what he's yet going to do in the future. We're excited about that. I mean, I hope we've been strongly encouraged this morning that we can actually trust God to deliver on his promises. He fulfills every single promise he's ever given. I mean, it may seem like a really silly question to ask a bunch of Christians, but do you trust God? The promise to the patriarchs, the promises to Moses, 
The promises to David, the promises to the prophets, the promises to the people of Israel, they've all been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And all that's still to find expression, that's certainly going to come to pass in the near future when Jesus comes back. Our Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter 1.19, And so we have the prophetic word made more sure. Well, how is it made more sure? It's more sure because the fulfillment's come. Jesus has come. So that prophetic word is even made more sure in our minds, and he goes on, to which you would do well to pay attention. To pay attention to Scripture. To pay attention to the Old Testament even. To pay attention to what else is written in the New Testament. You should be paying attention, he says, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. The glory of Jesus. Just like Zacharias in our story today, Elizabeth, the crowds, even Luke himself, we should be astonished at what God's already done in the world and be looking forward to what he's yet to accomplish and to bless God for the salvation we experience. Again, our sins are forgiven. And our future is secure. So be filled with joy that your sins are forgiven. Be filled with joy that your future is an eternal glory. This life is not all there is. And so while you live your life here, blessed by God, we can serve Him without fear. We don't have to run from the world. We can be engaged in the world. And speak to them about holiness and righteousness. Again, our greatest need as a society, really does get addressed this morning by Luke. I mean, he provides for us the knowledge of God and his salvation. People don't know what it is. And he explains to us how forgiveness of sins are available in Jesus Christ. People don't know where to find that. So continue to read and learn and absorb the story of Jesus. That's what the Gospel of Luke is. It's just the story of Jesus. And the more you absorb that story the more you're going to be able to tell that story to other people. And you can go ahead and read ahead in Luke. Read as far as you want. Read up to at least 19, verse 10, because that's like the centerpiece of the book. Where in the story of Zacchaeus, Jesus says, the Son of Man, speaking about himself, has come to seek and save that which was lost. And that's what the Gospel of Luke is about, is finding those lost sinners and sharing with them the hope of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us this morning. Oh Lord God, we praise you that you are an all-merciful God. We praise you that you have visited us, Lord Jesus, from heavenly glory, your eternal glory with the Father, that you've come and brought salvation, a salvation that you accomplished by dying on the cross for sins and taking upon yourself our debt. Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning as we read that you are the horn of salvation, the all-powerful, mighty king who has already conquered and is yet to conquer even more. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you are our sunrise from on high, that you bring us light and salvation and knowledge and peace and warmth and all of these things that you have purchased for us on your cross. May you continually enrich us as your people and cause us to have an even stronger faith 
in you, our Savior. Amen.